0: Looking at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. As you're finding your place there, there are different kinds of checklists. Right? There, there is the instructional checklist. Then this is the kind of checklist you get with the toy that you buy for your children or the piece of furniture you buy from Walmart. Okay? And there's this checklist of things that you have to do, right? And this checklist basically is saying if you do all of these things, then you will have a piece of furniture that looks just like the one on the box. It doesn't always look just like the one on the box, right? But, but you're going to have this, this checklist is promising you, it's giving you the expectation that if I do everything on this checklist, then I will have what it promises, You know, there are many religions across the globe that that is how they operate. If I do this thing, and I do this thing, and I do this thing, if I I pray and read these holy scriptures and and attend this number of services and, and give this number of things and make this Mecca, if I do all of these things, then I will be given eternal life. But that's not how... Christ, nor God, nor any of the authors of the New or Old Testament understand Christianity. You see, there's another kind of checklist. There's the kind of checklist that an inspector has as he's watching a piece of machinery go down a line. As he's watching this piece of machinery go down the line, he's checking to make sure, okay, so if this motorcycle is indeed going to go down the road, all the bolts have to be tightened. If, 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 this, if this motorcycle is going, to, is, is going to be able to handle this, this kind of speed, then these pistons need to measure this, this width. The checklist is an inspection of what's already been done. You see, in Christianity, Christ has already died for our sins. Eternal life has already been secured for the believer. The question is, am I a believer? Am I one of God's children? Now, this is not something we earn or something we do, but it is something that God, through Christ, has done for us and has accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. And John has given us this book, the, the epistle of 1 John, as a checklist by which we can inspect our lives and see if indeed our hearts have been transformed by the word of God. If indeed the gospel planted in us is going to bear fruit. John is giving us these things not so that we can earn our salvation, but so that we can examine our own lives and diagnose whether or not we have truly believed. There are statistics after statistics, and none of them can be proven but one of them, I think, that is most telling is the number of individuals that would claim to be believers versus those who are actually in attendance of a church. Now, is that a guaranteed sign of someone, whether they're a believer or not? That's a really hard measure. But I think it gives you an idea when you see this mass difference that only 20% of those who claim to be believers in Christ actually participate regularly in a church. It reveals something to us that what what came out of their mouth wasn't necessarily who they really were. John, in this book, is going to give us this checklist because he's concerned that there are individuals among the church that aren't actually believers. These are the Gnostics, is what he calls them. They claim to have a secret knowledge of God. And and he is concerned that these individuals are going to lead everybody else astray. And so he's giving them this checklist so that they can examine their own heart to make sure they are indeed born-again believers. And he's giving them this checklist so that they can look at those who are speaking to them and examine their fruit. And we're going to see that, that side of it more as we work through the book. But today, I believe he's, he's trying to assure these believers of genuine faith by asking them to examine what they believe. You see, a heart transformed by God will believe the truth of God, including the good, the bad, and the glorious. I'm going to say that one more time. The, the heart that has been transformed by God will believe the truth of God, including the good, the bad, and the glorious. And we are going to see this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. If you would, follow along with me as I read God's holy word for us. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word to us this morning. This understanding of joy and fellowship that that John began in verses 1 through 4 that we looked at last week, he's now developing as a sign of assurance. The first sign of assurance, the first way that we can know whether or not we are genuine believers in Christ is if we are genu- have genuine belief if we truly believe what we say if we have genuine belief in the nature of God as it is revealed in scripture he begins with this very powerful verse and I could literally spend all morning on this, so I'm just barely going to touch it, but this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is an obvious relationship between verses 1 through 4 because he's talking about this message that he's proclaimed in verses 1 through 4 and verse 5. This is the message. This is the message that brings fellowship with you and I. This is the message that brings fellowship with us and God. This is the message that brings us joy in the Christian walk, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if I were to stand up here and say, God is love, John's going to say that later on, right? If I were to stand up here and say, God is love, you, you automatically have things that come into your mind, right? You have an understanding, you have a grasp, of, of, of some things about love because it's a word, it's a way we describe things. But when we say God is light, it can be a little confusing because light is kind of this um, nebulous thing out here. Is he kind of like the force, may the force be with you kind of attitude? I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's using it in a very specific way. You see, it's a favorite analogy of John. And, and, and sometimes I could just kick John in the head because unfortunately he doesn't use it the same way every time he uses it he's got to be obstinate and so he he's using it and so sometimes he uses it the way he does in john 1 in which he says god is light and this is the light of life and he's using light to refer to life this this life-giving thing this life-giving energy this eternal life what it is like to live in eternity with God is to live in, in light. And other times he uses it more in a way to refer to um, purity, goodness, um, truth. And I don't know that those two things are separate. And this is why I think he's comfortable using both of them in the same way. He's comfortable using them this way because of the way Jesus uses it in John 3. Now, we're all familiar with John 3, 16, right? Probably one of the most famous verses in all of Christianity, right? We're familiar with this passage in which Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a doubter, right? He's a doubter. We don't know if he's a believer or not. Uh, um, Some believe he he was converted later on, but we don't know. In the moment he comes to Jesus, he's a doubter. He wants to believe Jesus. He sees the things that are going on. He goes to him in private and tries to clarify this. And Jesus tells him the way to eternal life, right? That's where John 3.16 comes in. This is the way to life. But unfortunately, we always want to stop with John 3.16. And and we don't want to continue going any further. Um, I think it's because, you know, that might take up more memory space that we need to save for Cardinal stats or, or something else, I don't know. Um, it is baseball season, people. All right, so John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we all say amen. But what comes after that, that's where it gets tricky. This, I believe, is more accustomed to the way John is using light in 1 John. He's using it in a way that the light has come into the world. And what is the purpose of this light? It reveals everything about us, right? It reveals. It, it, it sheds forth the truth about what's going on. And so he says the truth came into the world. This, this light, this, this moral Purity. How many of you, um, afterwards, you're going to go stare at the sun for hours on end? You're not, right? Why? It hurts. The light is so pure, there's, there's no shade when you're staring at the sun. It's so pure that, that, it, that it hurts your eyes. This is the kind of light that Christ is. He's, he's pure and he comes and he sheds light. The light has come into the world that he might reveal truth, reveal what's going on. Christ says, I am the way, the truth and the life, right? He's, he's revealing all of those things. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness. Now, I don't know about you, but my kids hate darkness it just kind of petrifies them i've seen people and don't deny it i've seen people come in here and they're petrified to walk into the sanctuary when it's dark they're like where's the lights i i'm not gonna walk in there when it's when it's dark it's 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 kind of intimidating because you don't know what's there right so why is he saying people love darkness you see not everybody loves not everybody loves the um dark or not everybody hates the darkness a matter of fact, most of us probably love some form of darkness. We don't want people to know who we really are, right? We want to cover that up. We want to darken the areas that don't look right. See, this is, this is how John's using this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. He is so pure, there's nothing covered up within him. His glory is is so pure. There's there's nothing that is not morally perfect and pure and lovely. And he has shed his light on the world. But people love darkness because the light revealed their deeds. Let me ask you this. Um, I prepared a a special video today of a snippet of each of your weeks. And it has a video of each of your weeks and where you've sinned. And we're going to put it up here on the screen. How many of you would feel comfortable right now? No. We wouldn't feel comfortable, right? You might see me yelling at my children. <gasps> Wait, this is the truth. This is, this is who we are. We're the, the light reveals these things about you and I. And God is this light. There is no darkness in him. He's not going to cover up anything. He's not going to... He's not going to hide anything, but everything will be revealed. And with that, we have clarity. We have understanding. You see, John, once again, remember I told you, he's counteracting these these bad people that have worked their way into the church called Gnostics and which they believe they had secret or hidden knowledge from God. And they were hearing from God and he was telling them to do things. And you know what? None of it was from scripture. And they were using this to justify all kinds of sins. John is saying, that's not my God. My God has revealed his mystery. His son, Christ, is the light of the world. This is the truth about God. And if we claim to be believers in God, we must believe God in all of his truth. Not pick and choose what we want. But but notice the light and accept it. And you know what? For believers, this is a beautiful sight. It's like looking at the sun-filled hills of the Ozark Mountains and just saying, God is amazing. When we look at light and see God as this perfect beauty... For doubters, it's almost uncomfortable because it's so incorruptible and pure, it seems too good to be true. And for unbelievers, they want nothing to do with it because it is unbelievable that we would have a God that would reveal everything about them. An understanding of God's character can be never left by itself. That's why he places it with verses 6 through 10 in which he reveals the truth about you truth about you. The bulk of today's passage is set forth from this section. It could be a temptation to use this as a tool to examine the people to our left or our right, people in the pew behind us, or the pew in front of us. But that is not why John wrote this letter. He he gives us these verses to examine ourselves, to to inspect If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You see, there's three kinds of deceiving going on here. In verses 6 and 7, we have the deceit of others. We're deceiving others. If we say we have fellowship with him, we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness. you see what he's saying? He's describing these two parallels in which... One, in one direction, we're speaking truth. We're saying all these things that are coming out of our mouth. We believe God. He's holy. He's wonderful. He's great. And then over here, I'm doing something different. It, it's like this. It, it's, like the, it's, like the, um, it, it's like the man that struggles with pornography. Over here, he says, God sees all things, knows all things, and understands everything. He knows my thoughts before I think them. And then over here, I'm going to walk and act as though God is not with me. I'm in darkness. No one knows. It's like the addict that says, over here, God is powerful enough to overcome my addiction. He's powerful enough to make a difference in my life. He's, he can transform me. And then over here, but until he does, I'm going to continue to enjoy what I know I shouldn't. This is what John is describing. The, the one who does this is a liar and not practicing the truth. But, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us up from all sin. I want you to notice something. We have these two, these two opposite extremes here. We have, we have the one who's deceiving others and the one who's honest with others. And we see the reaction. One is a liar and you want nothing to do with them. The other one, on the other hand, is in the light. But notice what he says. This, you can't forget this. Just because he's in the light doesn't mean he's perfect. doesn't mean that his lips always match his walk. Notice what he says here. In verse 7 he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. He doesn't say the one who walks in light is sinless. He doesn't say they're perfect. What's the difference? In verse 6 we have one who's lying and deceiving others, acting as though he has no sin. And in verse 7 we have the one who confess who's honest about his sin with others, they know it. You know what? Whether you tell others or not, they know you're a sinner. I I promise you, you can ask your spouse if you sin, they'll tell you yes. Ask your children. Ask your parents. Ask your neighbor. I I guarantee everybody can concur that you are a sinner. The, the, The difference in these two... Is one is concealing it, one is lying about it, acting as though it were not true, while the other one is is in the light as he is in the light. Like we looked at with John, his deeds, or with John chapter 3, the gospel of John, his deeds are being revealed. And you may be asking, what does this have to do with my fellowship with other people? Whether I hide my sin or I confess my sin, what does it have to do with my fellowship with other people and you know what i kind of was asking the same thing until wednesday night at proclaim Jeanette asked the children what makes a good friend and one of the boys stood up and shouted honesty and i thought really that's the first thing that came to your mind not loyalty not honesty that's the thing that comes to your mind and, and, and I got to thinking about that more in, in, this, in this child out of the mouth of babes, right? Um, this child, this boy, speaks up, and he speaks what is in this passage. And it kind of took me off guard that, that here, this, this honesty is what provides fellowship. Let me see if I can't illustrate it this way. If um, we have a church full of people, and, and we, are, we are going to have an event, okay, and I'm trying not to pick on anybody, but it's easier if I name names. So I'll just. So, Joe, Joe over here, uh, we don't have a Joe. So, Joe over here, he's, he's, um, he, he's going to help me with this event. And Joe tells me that he wants to do it this way, and it makes me angry. Now, I have a couple of options. Number one, I can go over here and pout and hide that I'm angry, or I can gossip or, or any number of things but not talk to Joe. And I can say, you know what? That's a great idea. We'll do it. And then over here, be mad about it and stew about it. Or I can go to Joe and I can say, you know what? That kind of makes me angry. And I'd I'd like to talk about it. Are you doing that to exclude my thoughts? Are you doing that to exclude me? Are you you ignoring this? Now, explain to me which is going to be a better friendship when it's all said and done. The second one right because why because the thing that was separating me and him has been dealt with it's been brought into the light it's not the elephant in the room it's not being talked about it's not the thing that we're ignoring and we don't we're we're, we're awkward around no we we've dealt with it this is what John is saying. If we're going to have fellowship, if we walk in the truth, we confess we're sinners, we know we're sinners, we, can, we, we talk to one another about our sin and deal with it, we have fellowship with one another, but not only that, when we talk to God about our sin, we deal with it there. So we have this relationship with others, but we also have this relationship with ourselves. I know that sounds strange, but um, did you actually know that I'm not the preacher you listen to most, right? You are the preacher you listen to most. You preach to yourself all day, every day, all week. In case you think I'm crazy, this week start listening to the voice in your head because you are already are. You, you're always having a dialogue in, in your head in which you're trying to justify, explain, and, and work through things. And he says here in verses eight through nine, he makes this statement, if we say we have no sin, we deceive our Selves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once again, John he he is good about going to two extremes here, and he's saying you have one person over here that says they have no sin; they're deceived. Truth isn't in them. And then you have the other person over here that confesses their sin. So we have these these two options in our life the the first one who denies his sin let me ask you this how many of you would actually say you're sinless raise your hand i don't see any hands so he must not be talking to us right i don't think it's quite that simple No one here would probably say they are sinless, but how many of us try to justify our sins as if they're not really a sin? How many of us cover their sins and try to hide them? How many of us blame others like Adam and Eve, pointing our fingers at one another for the sins that are in us? You're lying to yourselves. This is why the book of Hebrews writes this warning, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice he says, what's the cure for this? Spend time with each other. The cure for this deceitfulness of sin is not to seclude ourselves, to become a recluse and pull away from everybody, but it is to spend time with each other that we might exhort one another, that we might confront one another, where sin is creeping in and we don't see it. We need to make a habit of it to ask those that are closest to us, do you see sin in my life? It needs to be a habit. It needs to be something we, we think about. This is why our uh, small groups come in handy. It's because they're an opportunity each week to ask each other about applying the word of God, confess that sin, and deal with it. That's why we have this second option here. The one who confesses their sin. Notice... This is a much quoted passage. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why do we hide our sins when we have a savior, a God who will forgive us when we confess our sins? Though that shame and pride may keep us from it, we have this option of confessing, acknowledging our sins to God that we may experience forgiveness. Then there's this if we act as though we have no sin, we make God a liar. Now, I don't believe what he's saying is God is a liar. What I believe he's saying is, if we say we have no sin, we act as though the words of God were meaningless. Now, take yourself and your sin and go put it in the town square of Kabul. And you go down there and you ask these people as they walk by. Do you see sin in me? Because I'm sinless. No one's going to do that, obviously. Right. But we act as though we are sin, sinless, as though we're, we're better, that we don't have the problems. And those people look at us and say, either you're a liar or your God's a liar. Because they know you can't have both. Because they know the truth, they see us day in and day out, we're a small community, there's lots of gossips, it's how how rural America is, and they see us, they know who we are, there's no hiding who we are, and if we deny that we're sinners, we prove to them that either we're liars and we don't know what we're talking about, or God is a liar. But Christ says in Luke 12, 2 through 3, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in dark shall be heard in light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from housetops. Pretty steep indictment. This should cause us to examine our lives Are we honest with ourselves and others about who we are? You see, a true believer, a genuine believer in Christ, is the one who says, I am a sinner in need of a savior. The false believer in Christ says, I am a believer because I'm awesome. Now, maybe they're not going to say awesome, but because I fill in the blank. I tithe, read my Bible, pray, um, I, I, I give to the poor, I, I, I do all kinds of wonderful good deeds. So you have the false believer that is holding on to these things as the, the money they're going to give for their salvation. They've earned it. And then over here you have the individuals that are saying, I deserve nothing. Everything I do is because Christ has already given to me. And all I have in the back of my head is Jesus saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some will say, but I've given food, I've I've prayed, I've I've tithed. And he says, Not everyone who has said to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one Here in 1 John, who acknowledges the truth about himself and the truth about God, realizes that they need something. When you acknowledge that God is this pure light and holiness, and when when we compare that to ourselves and we see our sin, and we confess it and we're honest about our sin, we recognize there is something we need. In comes chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, or you might say when anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Genuine believers acknowledging that God is holy and perfect and pure, and I am not, and I am confessing my sin, we now turn to the truth and believe wholeheartedly with everything that we are, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This advocate that we have with the Father is advocate, the only other place in Scripture that it's used is of the Holy Spirit. It's this idea of helper, paraclete, this this person that comes alongside and helps you. We have a helper in Christ who comes alongside us and stands before the Father and pleads our cause. He pleads our cause because he is the righteous. He is the embodiment of all things righteous. He is is everything included in that. Not only does he plead our cause, but he is a propitiation. And I know that's a big 25 cent word and, and it intimidates a lot of people, but it should be a word that we love and cherish. Let me explain it to you this way. Christ is our advocate. You all know what an advocate is in a legal sense, right? He's standing before the judge, God the Father, and he's pleading our case. And he says, you know what, Father? They're guilty. But I would like you to take my righteousness and put it on their back. And you know what? I'm going to go, and I'm going to take their punishment. That's is the essence of the gospel. He who knew no sin took our sin upon himself. He gave us his righteousness. He imputed his righteousness to us and took our filth, our sin upon himself, and he is our propitiation for our sin. This big word literally means sacrificed. He he laid himself down that his sacrifice might cover our sins. Now you say, wait a minute. I thought God didn't like this covering of sins. Only when it's by the blood of Christ. No, he does not like the Adam and Eve that are going to cover themselves up with leaves and hide in the bushes. He wants those individuals who confess their sin to him that come before him and plead Christ as their cause. I am covered by Christ. Jesus paid my debt. The test of assurance for you this morning should be, do you believe? Do you believe that God is holy and there is nothing impure in him? That you are a sinner, and you are going to confess all of that sin. You are going to own it. You're going to own the consequences for it. But you are going to turn to Christ as your only help and say, all I have is Christ. That's what we've been teaching the kids for eight, it's seven weeks now. All I have is Christ. There's nothing in me that has earned anything. This is the belief of a genuine believer. Now, when I say belief, I'm going to end with this final application. When I say, do you believe these things? I want to, I want to take you back to this Latin understanding of belief. They had these three ideas, and I won't share the words with you. That It's this. Do I know it? Do I want it? And do I love it? Do I know it? Do I want it, and do I love it? This is how a genuine believer believes in these things. They they know that God is holy. They want God to be holy, and they love God's holiness. They they know that they are sinners. They want to be honest and confess their sin, and they love that they have a God who hears their confession. They, They know that Christ has paid for their sins. They they want Christ. All they want is Christ. And they love Christ above everything else. If that is you today, rest assured that faith is in your heart. Bow with me in prayer. Dearly Father, I plead with you that you would cause us to examine our hearts, not as a to-do list, not as a checklist, that we would somehow gumption up enough energy within ourselves to believe that indeed we are christians that we believe these things lord please let that not be us but as we examine these things may we think about our own hearts and our own faith if there be one of us today that is doubting i ask that you encourage them that you strengthen them that you bind up the brokenhearted help them to find peace, and hope in these words. If there be someone here today that does not believe, Lord, I ask that you would pierce their heart with this truth, that they might be softened and hear these things and turn to you in faith. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. Amen.